Thank you, Tracy. A beautiful song with a great meaning, Glenn. A beautiful song, well done. So thank you for that. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see not everybody's sick. Uh, at least we hope not you're here uh, too sick. Anyway, Pastor Paul is uh, sick, suffering from uh, some of the upper respiratory cough and stuff. And so um, today we continue looking at Christmas, but I'll let him continue the series he's intending for us. This morning I'll take us as a starting point to Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and you might think, yeah, well, there's Christmas stories there, right? Yeah, but we're going to go to the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Not chapter 2, where much of the season is spent, and rightfully so, from Luke chapter 2, but rather to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to look at just one verse here as a starting off point. It is the time of year indeed, even so a little more so this year, it seems like, of spreading the sickness around. My recommendation is as soon as you come in the lobby, just hold your breath for the next hour. <laughs> you'll, be a, you'll feel a lot better when it's all over, I'm sure. Well, two weeks from today, anybody else counting? That means I've, in 12 days I start shopping. <laughs> and I'm sure there might be some other men who sing that same chorus too this time of year. Christmas is a unique time. Boy, it's just, it's hard to really put into words and emotions all that Christmas brings. It is such a, a mixture of past and present and future. It's a time when we are easily distracted, at least attempted to be distracted, by a cultural view of Christmas. And all of the characters in the cultural Christmas have a real tendency to block our view of a manger and to block our view of this one born who is truly the son of God in flesh. It's easy to be distracted by all of that. And the world has all of its songs. And the culture puts everything in front of us, it seems like it can, to obstruct our vision of Christ, the promised one who came. And so this morning, I want us to start in Luke and then listen, because you'll, you'll be tough to keep up. Start in Luke as a jumping off point, but then look back at what the Old Testament says about the coming of this one. At some point in time, I would imagine we've all put a puzzle together, right? We've all done puzzles. Some of them are the, the puzzles with 8 or 10 or 12 pieces for the little 3-year-old that we help them with. And sometimes they help us with. Sometimes we put together those 500-piece puzzles. And they sit on the table for a long time. and It's really quite a fun event in many ways for our family to do that. But imagine for a moment taking one of those pieces... And just looking at that one piece. And we'd turn it, and we'd, you know, we'd, well, I see something there. It might be a flower, or a tree, or an animal, just, but it's just one piece. Well, let's get a few more pieces. So we grab a few more, maybe a handful. We lay them out, and we, we sort of see, well, I see some similarities in colors and shades, and, and maybe just... A couple of pieces might fit together, and we say, okay, well, I, I get a sense of what that is now, right? We can all envision doing that. 
we're left looking at all the right things, but we don't have a perspective to help us understand and value and appreciate those pieces. Indeed, it will not be until we put probably three or four hundred of those pieces together that we begin to see the entirety of what the picture might be. Oh, and even worse, if we don't have the box top. That's the most important part of the puzzle, right? If you don't have the box top, you're really just confused. You're, all you're doing is looking for the pieces with a square on one edge. So we can start to try to frame this thing. But even then, how long would it take before you began to see the big picture? Lots of pieces. I submit to you the Bible is much that way in, in the way in which we approach it. We come to church, come to a Bible class, hear a sermon on the radio, on the television, and we see a piece. We're not really sure how this piece connects to this piece or we don't have the whole big picture in our mind sometimes. And what happens is it becomes just a bunch of unrelated stories and unrelated passages. They don't really give us a picture of the whole. They leave us a bit frustrated. And after a while, we tend to just walk away from the table. I, I just, I don't see it. I don't get it. It doesn't mean much to me. The big picture if we don't have the big picture, we lose the value of the little pieces. We could take those little pieces and lay them out and do our best with it, but without the big picture, we're just kind of grabbing at straws, as it were, trying to get some imagery of what this is all about. The big picture of the Bible, the big picture of God's perspective, often eludes us. And I submit to you, without that big picture, we are left just as frustrated. We get a piece of things here and there, but we don't see the connection. We don't have the capacity to, to understand what's going on in the, the greater vision. The long story of Scripture, given to us, preserved, inspired. The long story of Scripture is the enduring story of God's work. God's work in creation. It's the story of man's rebellion. Following his own desires, his own path. It's a story of God's work through grace to bring redemption from that rebellious nation. And finally, it's God's work of restoration. He will make all things right. He will indeed impose a new existence, a higher reality, a greater truth than we have ever known. We must have the big picture. Hear it again. The long story of Scripture is the enduring story of God's work of creation, of man's rebellion, of God's work of grace to bring redemption, and finally of God's work of restoration. Those four statements, I believe, form a frame in which we can begin to put all the pieces together. And all of a sudden, it's not just a story of a man named Abraham or another one named Moses or a woman named Ruth or even a couple, Mary and Joseph. They're not unrelated stories. We begin to see the connection. The pieces start to fit. 
but without the frame of that puzzle. Because that's where you always start, right? You start at the edge and work your way in. Without the frame, all the other pieces have no purpose and no use. They're just disconnected, disjointed, and leaves us thinking, I sort of see it, but it, I don't see the connection. It's important we see the big picture. The result can come upon us in such a way that the Christian life becomes disjointed and disconnected. The Christian life is a life of maturing and growth. It is rightly called and, and referenced as a journey oftentimes. We don't view life the same as a 20-year-old when we're 40 years old. We don't view life the same when we're, the, when we're single as compared to when we're married. We don't view life the same when we're not parents as to when we are parents. And more recently in my life, I don't view life the same as a grandparent than before I was a grandparent. If we're not careful, life becomes disconnected, disjointed. And the scripture just becomes a, a story here and there, a passage taught, a reference made, we don't see the big picture. It's important we keep the big picture in mind. Today, our time will limit us from getting far into the big picture. But I do want us to pull out some truths to help us visualize that big picture. And to do this, I want to start in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. This is the very last chapter of Luke's gospel. It is the account of Jesus after his resurrection. And we're going to, we're, I'm going to read the chapter. I'm going to pull one verse out of it. But just to set the setting for this one verse. Jesus, after the resurrection, is described here as working his way down a path with two men on their way to Emmaus, we're told. He has some conversation with him. Go back and read it when you have time. They do not know who he is. They do their best to explain to him what's happened these last many days. Are you, are you a stranger? Don't you have, you have you no knowledge of this? They ask Jesus, the very center of everything. So they try to explain. And the scripture will tell us that he opened their eyes. He let them have some knowledge and some understanding that they could appreciate and value. But verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded. The word means explained with depth. He was connecting the pieces. You know what he had heard them say? We understand a bit of this and a little bit of that. We've got a reference point for what just happened, but we can't connect the pieces. In the words of Scripture, when it says Jesus began to expound to them from the Scriptures, the things concerning himself, you know what he was doing? Connecting the puzzle pieces. They were uncertain what was going on. They were frustrated. They didn't have an explanation. They, they thought it was the the end of the story that they could not have imagined. But once Jesus gave them a view of the big picture, 
they had more clarity. They knew what they should do. They knew what they should say. They knew who they should say it to. Today, I want to take the very thought that is given to us through Scripture that Jesus looked at Moses, which is the writing of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books are the writings of Moses. And they explain, of course, everything from creation in Genesis, the creation account, the Garden of Eden, the flood of Noah, after the flood, the Tower of Babel gets us through chapter 11. Chapter 12, we get Abraham. And then you begin to follow the lives of these men who are often called patriarchs. Abraham, and then Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the seed that God is planting to bring a group of people. The lineage of Abraham is found in those people, those sons of Jacob, the 12 who will be the fathers of this great nation of people. And then Moses continues that story through the book of Exodus. Leviticus explains to us about the work of setting up the religious nature of, these, of this people. And the work of the priest and how they should exercise and understand. Numbers is the travel log of the wilderness journeys. Deuteronomy are the final words of Moses as he stands there near to crossing over into the promised land, the writings of Moses. Jesus began there. He expounded unto them. He began to connect the pieces. And the prophets, the prophets all run through the Old Testament, don't they? Even Moses is called a prophet. So that the, the Scripture will portray to us a truth of the Old Testament that is found in the Christmas story. The Old Testament portrays a concept that is called the Messiah. Messiah is a word we hear some, and you might even hear it especially at Christmas time because of the, of the work of, um, of George Handel who in 1741 wrote that great composition called the Messiah. It is still done and celebrated as one of the pinnacle musical movements of the season, for sure. Messiah. It's a word to us that we have heard, but again, it's one of those puzzle pieces we kind of pick up and turn around and not real sure how it fits. Messiah means a deliverer. Someone who liberates the captive, a savior. At its truest root, the word Messiah means the anointed one. The one designated and affirmed by God himself to be the one through whom God would perform his work of restoration through grace. And ultimately his, refer his uh, uh, reforming of the creation. Messiah. It comes from the Hebrew 
from the Old Testament verbiage, it comes into the New Testament as a word Christos. And then from there into Latin, Christus, from Greek to Latin, and then from Latin to English. So that it becomes our word that we're so familiar with. We've already sung it today, Christ. You see, Christ is not a name of the anointed one. It's the title of the anointed one. He is referred to in Scripture as Christ Jesus, the anointed one Jesus. And he's referred to in Scripture as Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one. You read it both ways, and it has the same very identical meaning. Jesus is this Messiah. And oftentimes, because we lose the big picture, we forget the Old Testament is going to foretell of this coming Messiah. So listen, if you will, while we look through the scriptures, just a few glimpses here and there, but hopefully enough to, for us to get a clarity to the idea of Jesus the Messiah. For indeed, throughout the scriptures are weaved a multitude of references in the Old Testament to this Messiah. Bible scholars will number more than 300 times in the Old Testament where there's a passage that points to the future. It says there's one coming. That's the one they were looking for. You see, the faith of the Old Testament is no different than the faith of the New Testament. The faith of the Old Testament says there is one who's coming. Look for him. Place your faith in that one that's coming. And then God, through his inspiration, will weave into those Old Testament passages images foreshadowing the one who is to come. We today stand two millennia beyond that event. And so we don't preach he's coming as Savior. We preach he came as Savior. We look back. But it's the same faith principle. In looking back, we need to have some perspective of what the Old Testament was teaching us about the Messiah. Prophecies that record and point to his birth, some of which we'll look at this morning, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. They're all there. And they help us to see the bigger picture of the Christ we celebrate at Christmas. I'm afraid for many, without that big picture, Jesus is just one of the stories of Christmas. Oh, we'll put Jesus here. He'll be right beside Rudolph, the Grinch, and the Nutcracker. He just becomes one of the many. I submit to you today, the Scripture knows such perspective of Jesus. The Scripture says Jesus and Jesus alone is the object of our affection. These prophecies of Christ repoint will point us to the location, the circumstances, even the timing of Jesus' birth. And only God, in his wisdom, could have planned all of that. Man's humanity has no capacity to do it. Let me illustrate it to you very simply. I want you to think five generations beyond yourself. 
And I want you to tell me this. When will your great, 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 great grandson be born? Where will he be born? To whom will he be born? And what's going to be the circumstances of his birth? Can you tell me that? Humanly impossible. But God does that through the scriptures about Jesus multiple, multiple times. The prophecies tell us of this one who is to come and be that Messiah. Again, listen and let me go quickly through some passages. It starts there in the Garden of Eden. The writing of Moses, Genesis chapter 3. Once the rebellion has occurred and Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, a pronouncement is made upon that circumstance. And God speaking to the serpent. The, the manifestation of Satan, as it were, says, I will put enmity between the serpent, Satan, and the woman. And between thy seed, those who will follow you, and her seed, there's going to be a striving, God predicts. That enmity involves a striving. And that striving shall result in the bruising of your head, God will say. And in this striving, you shall bruise his heel. We might read that and pick up the piece and go, I just don't see it. Hear it again. God is saying to Satan through the serpent, there's going to be in this conflict and strife, blows exchanged. And you will cast a blow that will bruise his heel. Haven't we all had a heel bruise at some time or another? Stone bruise, we often call them. They aggravate you for a while. We'll take a couple of Advil and survive. A bruise to the heel. Satan, that's what you're going to deliver in this conflict to the one who is to come. A bruise to the heel. But Satan, you're going to receive a blow. But the blow is going to be a blow to the head. Much more serious. Deadly. You see, even in Genesis, God was foretelling in this great passage of Genesis 3 that there's going to be one to come. It was a warning to Satan. It was a reminder to us. And all through the centuries, if individuals have read this passage and maybe missed it, they picked up the piece and went, I, I just don't see it. But I'll move on. I'll keep reading. We see plainly because now we have the benefit of looking back and we see with clarity what the Lord was saying in this passage. There's going to be one to come. That one anointed for the purpose of casting a blow to your head, Satan, that will bring an ultimate end to your influence, and to your schemes, to your plans of death and destruction. 
Some have called this passage, and I think rightfully so, the gospel before the gospel. It's God saying thousands of years before Christ, there will be one. And my pronouncement is, in the exchange of blows, you will cast nothing upon the anointed one more than just a bruise to the heel. But he will cast a, a blow to you that will be a bruise to your head, a blow to your head. Indeed, the first glimpse of a coming Savior. In Genesis 22, again, the writings of Moses. We are told that through Abraham's offspring, it says there all nations on earth will be blessed. All nations. It is indeed the lineage of Jesus that can be traced back to Abraham. That's why the Gospel of Matthew, the very first page of the New Testament, opens with a chapter of genealogies. We do not value those genealogies the way Jewish and Hebrew ears would. We tend to just go, ah, who wants to read all the names? Turn the page. But those genealogies validate what Genesis said. It shall be from the seed of Abraham that there shall come this Messiah. Numbers 24, the writings of Moses. Verse 17, I see him, Moses in the reference here quotes, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. A scepter will rise out of the east, one who rules. The writings of Moses told us this. And then we look at the prophets. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced Isaiah. And indeed, he is a prominent voice in this discussion. His words are often quoted, and we'll probably hear them before the season is over. Isaiah 11.1, 1, we know that this Messiah is from the line of Jesse. Now, here's another genealogical reference. Jesse is the father of King David. Isaiah 11 says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. The idea there that Jesse has died and passed, but from his lineage, a shoot will come up. From his roots, a branch, and will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Again, the genealogies are important. As you flip through the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis 5, Genesis 10, You'll find it in the books of Chronicles and Kings and New Testament, Matthew and other places. Genealogies have a valid point to show us. And that is that Jesus isn't here by accident. It wasn't, if, as, wasn't as if the Trinity of God said, well, you know, there's nothing really happening right now, Jesus. <laughs> I, I guess it's a good time to go be the Savior. No, this was, this was in God's mind from eternity past. Jeremiah, another great prophet of the Old Testament, chapter 23, tells us that he will be from the lineage of King David himself, the greatest of all kings referenced in the history of Israel. The days are coming, Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just in the land. 
a righteous Savior. This is Messiah. Second Samuel, spoken by the prophet Samuel to King David himself. Samuel would say, as recorded for us, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you're dead, and the implication there seems to be when you are long dead, the Lord says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He shall come from your own body, and I will establish a king to his kingdom, and he will be one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You can read a little bit of Solomon in that prediction or in that prophecy because he indeed will build a temporary house. But the greater picture is the Messiah will build his kingdom forever. Micah, smaller prophet in volume, writes in the latter part of the Old Testament, as, as we have it in our text, that the Messiah will be born into the tribe of Judah, even to the region of Epatah, in the town, you guessed it, of Bethlehem. Micah writes these words recorded for us in chapter 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans or from the tribes of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old or from ancient times. Micah named the place. Certainly a small and significant little community. Those of you that were here Wednesday night, and by the way, we, we really were blessed by the video, the movie Wednesday night put out by Turning Point Ministries. Let me encourage all of you to go find that. And why, if you haven't seen it, go watch it and share it with your family. You can find it online at the Turning Point Ministries website. We were reminded there just how insignificant this little community of Bethlehem was. And yet there, in an insignificant place, an insignificant community, in an insignificant place, to an insignificant couple, at an insignificant time, was born the most insignificant person that's ever put feet on earth. Jesus Christ. Isaiah will say words that we have heard and will hear, and rightfully should this time of year. That the Messiah will be born to a virgin. The Lord himself will give you a sign. A miracle. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you will call his name, we know it, Emmanuel. God with us. The Messiah with us. A reference, of course, to his deity. Jesus was not conceived of human relations. That's true of all the rest of us, by the way. But it's not true of the Messiah. He bears 100% divinity and deity in his nature. And he bears 100% humanity through his birth. Isaiah, again, will tell us that the Messiah will come as a baby. You know, the Messiah, the anointed one, could have come in chariots of fire. The way Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire, the Messiah could have returned that way. There will be a time when he will appear in his glory, but that is still to us future. 
But in this instance, Isaiah plainly says, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, the burden of the government that overshadowed his earthly ministry through the hands of Rome was proven to be insufficient to end his purpose and to conclude his ministry. The burden of the government that he shall bear as one day ruler of the earth shall be borne righteously and justly by him. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name, we know these phrases, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's our Messiah. That's the one who the Old Testament plainly gives to us. In Psalm 72, there's a reference to those who will come before him and bow before him, even the kings. May the desert tribes bow before him, it says, and his enemies lick the dust. What a reference to royalty. Those who come with humble hearts will bow rightly before him in humility and recognition that the Messiah is the ruler of all. But to those who have spent their life, their energy, their words, and their writings trying to deny the Messiah, his enemies, they shall lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, a reference to the Middle East region there. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. A little glimpse of that was given when those, those magi came and brought to him their gifts of gold, frankincense, and more. Small portion. A little glimpse given to us. That passage goes on to say, May the kings of Sheba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. It doesn't matter a person standing on this earth. They may have the greatest wealth. They may have the greatest prestige. They may have the greatest power. But in the end, every person stands as merely a human before God Almighty. Even the Supreme Court will someday have to face the Supreme Judge. No one is above this. Remember the story when Jesus was born, when those Magi came to Herod the Great, and they made their proclamation, we have, we have read in the scriptures, we have seen, we've, we've, they've had a few pieces of the puzzle. We have come to worship this child born a king. Herod, in his own selfish desire, his own self-deception of how important he was. Oh, bring me word when you find him. I want to come worship him too. Liar. Herod had no intent to do anything but bring harm to anyone he thought might be a threat to his kingdom. The wise men would be warned by God that they should not return. 
and they didn't. Herod's now in quite a dilemma. What do I do? I've, I hear word of this. Boy, everyone's talking about this, but I don't know what to do. Uh, I know. Let's just, well, don't worry about finding the child and killing him. Let's just take all the children and kill them. Surely I'll cast the net wide enough that we'll take care of this one who others think might be a, a king in place of me. Jeremiah chapter 31 foreshadows, prophesies that very reality. Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, reference to, to Israel, mourning and great weeping. Rachel, again, the reference to the lineage of Abraham. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. They've been killed and slaughtered. This slaughter of the innocents, hundreds of years as a circumstance of the birth of Christ. In response to this attempt on Jesus' life, Mary and Joseph were given direction. The Lord said, leave here. It's unsafe. Go to Egypt. Go to another country. And indeed they did, if you know the rest of that story. You know, the sad reality to Christmas is on January 26, all of a sudden, a lot of people forget about Jesus. And the la I don't know, the last time I saw him, oh yeah, he was in the manger. But there's more to the story. There's more pieces of that puzzle. What Mary and Joseph did was take Jesus to Egypt where he could be safe out of the reach of Herod's intent. And they stayed there until he died. This was predicted in the prophecy of Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 1 reads, When Israel, when, when Israel was a child... A reference to the Messiah. I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The prophecies of Christ go on and on. There's some great books. There's some great references about the prophecies of Christ. For indeed, over a span of hundreds of years, through the voices and the hands of many writers, beginning with Moses and continuing to the prophets, God is infusing this big picture storyline of one who will come. The prophecies indeed are just not about his birth. They're also about his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. You can find a lengthy list of those topics all through the Old Testament. One of the premier prophecies of the Messiah is given to us again from the hand of Isaiah. As the Lord speaks through him, recorded for us in chapter 53, verses 5 through 7. What was the purpose of this Messiah? Part of God's redemption through grace. Isaiah would say these words, probably familiar to many. But he, the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see, the Messiah wasn't coming just to be a fulfillment of prophecy. The Messiah came to be the fulfillment of a plan, God's plan, to bring redemption 
and to restore our place before God Almighty. That's why there had to be justice for our transgressions. There had to be a bruising for our iniquities. There had to be a chastisement of sin. There had to be the application of stripes. That's why. The only question remained is who is going to receive all of that? And rightly and justly before God, we are the ones who should receive for our own sins the wounds, the bruising, the chastisement, and the stripes. We should receive them, and rightfully so. But the Messiah came. And when the judgment was cast, the Messiah said, I will take it. I will take the wounds. I will take the bruises. I will take the chastisement. I will take the stripes. Yea, I will take the death so that grace can restore those who have sinned. There is none who are exempt from this. Isaiah will say, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into our own way, and the Lord has laid on him all of our iniquity. He was oppressed. The Messiah oppressed. The Messiah was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He stood silent before his accusers, didn't he? He, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, innocent, perfect, spotless, as a lamb, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, Isaiah says, so he opened not his mouth. He received what was rightly and justly mine to receive, yours to receive. And in doing so, he fulfilled a part of that huge big picture. And the huge big picture is God created, man rebelled, God restores through grace, and then God will complete in a full reformation of his creation. Do we see the pieces put together a little bit? I think we can. In looking at these passages and other, to remind us that when we see that manger, when we look at the card, or hear the story again, or drive through the nativity, when we see that manger, we're reminded, there, there the Messiah came. And the Messiah was Jesus, Christ, the anointed one. We can rejoice today, can't we? Because God has given us this avenue of redemption. It is through Jesus Christ, who said, I would have all men come unto me. And Scripture teaches us that in our sin, we have no other avenue. Either we take the punishment for ourselves, or we accept the gift given to us through the Messiah. His birth, indeed, is more than just a seasonal event. It is more than just one of many Christmas stories. It is the premier event of human history that brings us to a point to say, God fulfilled his promises. And God spoke through his prophets and recorded in his word what would happen 
and we see it fleshed out in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. All that's left for us is to accept what's been given. To receive God's gift of salvation is to accept what the Messiah did for us. That Jesus the Christ took upon himself our punishment and offers to us salvation through faith. How? By grace, because it's the work of God. And that gracious work of God turns to us and says, will you by faith accept what Christ has done? So today, a reminder, a little bit more of the bigger picture, and I hope a good place for us to go into these next couple of weeks as we will continue to be bombarded by the sounds, by the voices, by the visuals of Christmas. Let's don't just put Christ in the middle of all of it. Let's lift Christ up above all of it in what we do. Let's bow our heads there. The Scripture gives us indeed great places to, to park and to see the Word fulfilled, to be reminded of the great promise, and to be reminded of the great salvation that is given to us through Christ. It's available. Have you received the gift of God's salvation? Have you simply prayed and said, Lord, I acknowledge I am a sinner. I deserve the punishment, the chastisement, the judgment. That's who I am apart from Christ. And have you asked God to forgive you? And have you asked God to give you that gift of eternal life? For it is only found in Jesus Christ. There is none other. The angels said it, did they not? For until you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's the only option. Let him be that option you choose. Father, thank you today for the passages we've looked at. Thank you that recorded for us there in Luke is this reminder that Jesus himself, in helping to explain the big picture, went to Moses and to the prophets. And I pray today it will remind us that this time of year, though we are bombarded with other distractions, may we be wise in lifting up Christ and seeing him first and foremost in all that, that is or ever will be Christmas. And I pray you'll do a work in our hearts today. Draw us to yourself for those who have put their, uh, their faith in Christ as Savior. And I pray that today, maybe there's some here who haven't done that. I pray that you will remind them. May the Holy Spirit truly convict them and draw them unto yourself that they might receive this gift of God. That they might truly know the reality of being born again. Help us not to be deceived. We are of unrighteous stock. We can only come to you seeking your grace for our needs. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come thou long expected Jesus. They were expecting him.